Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. In the book of Job, Job, in the middle of his suffering, asks a question, or rather poses a problem, depending on your translation, that reveals the real human problem with God. Job asks or states in Job 9.33, your translation might say, is there an arbiter, is there a mediator? But it would probably be more likely worded, there is no arbiter, there is no mediator between God and man. Job is seeking someone to plead his case, to go before God on behalf of him, and he laments that there is no such mediator. No such mediator that can place his hands on God and place his hands on man, and so mediate between the two. There is no go-between, Job says. And here in Exodus 28, as we're still at the foot of Sinai, we have a glorious, beautiful part of one big picture. And that same picture comes to mind. God is up there. Man is down here. Who will go between? At Sinai, we've seen God's glory on the top of the mountain. And we've heard the people uh, commanded to stay far off, stand far off, as one man is called in, the man Moses. So in this scenario, with God up there and man down here, as God said it should be, one man is called in in so that God might dwell with them and so that they might come to God, God reveals to this one man how this is to happen. And last week we saw the plans for the tabernacle, the furniture, all the vestments that God has ordained for the tabernacle, the entrance, the altar, the atonement that's to take place. And we've seen one key component enacted in all of this. Moses stands there as the intercessor, as the mediator, as the go-between, between the people and God. Between the glory of God on the top of the mountain and the people who were standing far off. And now we're told that there will be an office that will mediate for the people, not just on Sinai and down at the foot of Sinai, but in the tabernacle itself between the Holy of Holies and the people outside. One office will go in, will atone for the people, will pray for the people, will intercede for the people, will maintain the sacrifices and the furniture and the lamps and the bread. And this office of the priesthood will be central to the tabernacle, central to the later temple. And maybe you don't understand this today, but it's central to you and me and the gospel as well. Let's talk this morning first about this office of the priesthood, and then we'll see in a particular story here at the end, near the end of Exodus, why that office is so important. Let's begin in chapter 28, verse 1, with the priest's dress. 
God says in chapter 28, verse 1, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to, give, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, we've heard them before, now also Eleazar and Ithabar, bring them to me, God says. They will serve me as priests. And here we have in verse 1 the calling of the first priests in Israel, Aaron and his four sons, priests who will stand before God on behalf of the people, who will represent the people before God. Now, if you're looking at your headings there, if you have an ESV Bible or whatever Bible you're using, it's probably headed somehow, the priest's garments, the priest's dress, the priest's wardrobe, whatever it is. I think that's so interesting that here at the beginning of the consecration and the ordination of these priests, what does God give attention to first? Not how they, would be, how they would be called, how they would be anointed, how they would be consecrated, not a liturgy for doing that, not even what they're going to do. But he begins with their clothes. And so we see here it's a big deal in this setting what the priests are wearing when they come into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And look at verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and beauty. I think it's so interesting that God makes sure we understand that this is not just a utilitarian, pragmatic thing that he's doing. He is giving us these signs and symbols in the tabernacle, in the furniture, in the, even the dress and the wardrobe of the priest. But he says they're not just there to teach. These things are also there for glory and for beauty. Because when we see beauty in the world, when we hear beauty in music, when we read beauty in literature or whatever form it comes to us, we understand that all truth is God's truth and all beauty is a reflection of God's beauty. And it points us to him. And God says these garments, this wardrobe for the priest, will serve a purpose. But God goes beyond that and says these are also for glory and for beauty. And what are the main components of this wardrobe? Here in verse 4, we see them listed for us. These are the garments that they shall make. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. When these priests come into my presence, they are to wear this certain dress a breastpiece, an ephod, a coat, a turban, a sash. Let's begin to look at some of these components here in chapter 28. Let's start with the ephod. God says it's to be gold and blue and purple and scarlet. Again, these fine, costly materials, these fine, costly, precious colors. And the ephod, as you can see, is that sort of central piece that is worn over top of the main robes and underneath the breast piece. It's to be made with these special materials placed over the shoulder, over the head of the priest. And you might notice even in the picture at the top where the shoulders are, there are to be two onyx stones attached. And God specifies this here in chapter 8. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is part of the ephod. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. 
So here on this primary component that the priest will wear are these two stones, and literally engraved on those two stones are the names of the sons of Israel. The next piece we come to in verses 15 through 30 is the breast piece. Again, made of gold and blue and purple and scarlet. A plate to be placed over the ephod, nine inches by nine inches squared, with four rows of three precious stones each. Twelve precious stones, four rows of three. And again, look at what God says in verses 17 through 21 about these stones. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row of emerald, sapphire, and diamond. The third row of jacinth and agate and amethyst. And the fourth row of beryl, onyx, and jasper. And they shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. So not only on the ephod... And the shoulder pieces are the 12 names engraved. But even here on the breast piece are the 12 tribes, the 12 names of the sons of Israel engraved. The next piece we come to is the ephod, or the robe for the ephod, verses 31 through 35. You might notice that around the ephod and underneath it is that blue solid robe. That's what we're talking about here. I think something interesting shows up at the end of this uh, description in verses 33 through 35. If you look at the picture there on the very bottom, I'm sorry, go back to the picture. You can see uh, little bells or something at the bottom. And God specifies what those are to be starting in verse 33. On the hem of this blue robe, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate and a golden bell and a pomegranate. He's showing the pattern every other around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. When he comes out so that he does not die. That's an interesting translation so that he does not die. And what many scholars agree this means is that when the priest would go in to minister in the holy place, the first chamber, but when the high priest especially goes into the most holy place, you need these bells attached to the bottom of the robe so that if the priest was defiled or the priest was unclean and God's holiness lashed out and killed them, as we see he does with Nadab and Abihu and others that might go into the holy of holies, unatoned for or unclean, the bells will stop you'll know the priest is no longer walking around in the chamber. And certain traditions say there was even a rope tied to the foot of the high priest so that if he fell dead in the Holy of Holies and no one else can go in there, he might be brought out by the rope because of his defilement before the Lord. It's interesting that God says even here in the robes, put bells on it, so if the priest drops dead, you'll know it. In chapter 28, verses 36 through 38, we see God's um, ordination of the turban for the, for the head of the priest. But the most precious part of the turban is not the turban itself, and God doesn't spend much time explaining what that is. But in verse 36, it is the gold plate on the front of the turban. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. There on the forehead of the priest... 
attached to his turban along with all the other holy garments is to be a sign that is about the garments, but is also about the priest. That this man, consecrated, anointed by God, set apart by God, is holy to the Lord. Set apart for God's service. Set aside from profane or worldly tasks and called to God's service. This is a sign of who they were, of what they were. They were consecrated to God's worship and God's service. The last two pieces we see in verses 39 through 43 are the coat and namely the sash. That white robe that's to be worn under all of this and the sash that overgirds the whole thing as a belt. And then in verses 42 through 43, we read about the holy undergarments. Verse 42, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So literally from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, which is another interesting side note, what did we not see listed here in the order of the clothing? We did not see anything about shoes or footwear at all. When you think back, this makes sense because when Moses is there at the burning bush, what did God tell him? Take off your shoes for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And so this isn't just mindlessly omitted by God or left out by Moses. This is intentional. That just as Moses was there in holy ground in the presence of God on the mountain with the burning bush, just as he was on holy ground on Sinai, the priests, when they serve in God's presence in this tabernacle, in this daily ongoing worship and sacrifice, they are in the holy presence of God, and so they have no need for shoes. But from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet, shoes or no shoes, they are covered with some sort of special garments with special significance that shows who they are, what they do, and what the Lord has called them to do for his people. And God says as we begin this understanding of the priesthood, we start with the dress of the priest because in the dress of the priest we see what they are called to do. Two verses tell us this. Go back to chapter 28, verse 12. About the onyx stones on the ephod on the shoulder. Verse 12, you shall set two, two stones on the shoulder piece of the ephod, stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. Listen to how it describes what this means. Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then again in verse 29, we came to the breast piece with the 12 stones there. Same thing, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. What is the priest called to do here in the, the, in the very essence of what he's wearing These names engraved on his shoulder and on his chest near his heart. The priest is carrying or taking the people as their representative before the presence of God. In the glory and the beauty of the tabernacle, with the glory and the beauty of his very dress, he is hearing from God and he is meeting with God on behalf of the people whom he represents, engraved there on his shoulders and his chest as he bears them before the Lord. 
And that brings us next to the priest's work. Chapter 29 through chapter 30. What does the priest actually do? Well, Aaron and his sons will be consecrated as priests. And we will first have the sin offering initiated. Of all the offerings that God will unveil and will reveal to his people, we learned about these in Leviticus, the first one we come to is the sin offering. We understand that this is central to what the priest does. The regular ongoing work of the priest is to bear the people before God, to pray for them, and to atone for their sins. In other words, the work of the priest will be this continual reset of the covenant. That as God gives blessing and the people sin against God, rather than cutting cutting them off, which he could very well do, righteously and rightfully and justly, no, he institutes the priesthood to go between the people and God and so to continually renew the covenant with the shedding of the blood. But notice first that these priests, chapter 29, must be consecrated and made holy. Do you see that? The priests themselves must be called and sanctified and made holy, and their sins must be atoned for. Look in chapter 29, verse 12. God tells the people, as the consecration of these priests uh, unfurls before them, bring one bull and two rams. And look at what it says in verse 12. Take part of the blood of the bull that is killed and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. One bull, two rams. Step number one, kill the bull. Some of the blood shall be put on the horns of the altar to atone for the sins of the people, to atone for the defilement of the people, and the rest of it shall be poured out at the base of the altar. And then look at verse 16. One of the rams of the two shall be killed, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. Remember this last week we saw as God was initiating the tabernacle and the various pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And as they were coming near to consecrate the people and to establish the covenant, there was blood thrown against the altar. We have that here in the consecration of the priest. But there's another ram. And in verse 20 we read what to do with the other ram. And you shall kill the other ram and take part of its blood. Put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons. And on the thumbs of their right hands and on their great toes, on their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. What in the world does that mean? That you shall anoint Aaron literally with the blood of this ram on his ear, right ear, his thumbs, and his toes. When you think about the dress of the priests, all the other parts of the priests are covered. And so just as the altar and the furniture pieces and the tabernacle itself are consecrated and made holy and atoned for by the throwing of blood against them and the pouring of it at the altar base, so when this blood is attached to Aaron and his sons on their ear, their hand, their foot, on that dominant side in Hebrew culture, the place of blessing at the right hand, their sins are being atoned for. They are being consecrated and set apart. And this continues in chapter 29, verse 21. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments. So on Aaron and the clothes he's wearing. And on his sons and his sons' garments with him. 
He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So now, not just with the anointing of their ears and their thumbs and their toes, but with the sprinkling of this holy anointing oil and the sprinkling of the blood from the altar, God sets apart these men for service to him. A sign in the oil of gladness and of his Holy Spirit calling them and setting them apart. A sign in the blood of their cleansing and them being atoned for. And then what are they to do? In chapter 29, verse 31. Well, then you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in the holy place. Verse 32. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram. What next is there to do except to sit down now and eat? You say, well, that's odd. All this killing and all this blood and all this throwing of blood everywhere. And now you're sprinkled with blood and oil. And now we want to sit down and eat. Well, remember what happened back in chapter 24, verse 11, as God revealed himself to Aaron and Moses and his sons, remember? And they saw the Lord, and his feet was on like what was sapphire. And what did it say they do in chapter 24, verse 11? They sat down, and they ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. This will be an ongoing sign of that. That now, at the end of this period of consecration, they eat in the presence of the Lord. God's presence, his glory is there. They go in while the people stand far off. They meet with God. God speaks to them. And now they have this fellowship meal in the presence of God as the representatives of the people. We have a glaring problem in the problem of the people's sins. We're going to see a big one today in our story But that is a big problem. How are we going to keep this up? How we just continually have to atone for the people and to continually atone for their sins and the defilement and uncleanness? And God says that's exactly what you're going to have to do because sin will be ongoing. Defilement will be ongoing. And so the need for atonement will be ongoing. And so God sets up what we call the sin offering. Look there beginning in chapter 29, verse 36. Every day. Every day, there in the tabernacle court, you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to consecrate it. Look at verse 38. This is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. The first lamb of tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. This is going to be a daily, ongoing, twice a day sacrifice with the bull and the two lambs before the Lord. Look at verse 41. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering is in the morning for a pleasing aroma a food offering to the Lord. Look at verse 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified for my glory. Verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Verse 46. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is how this process must go, Moses. The people are unclean. 
The people are sinful, the people are defiled, and they cannot bring that into my presence. So rather than lash out against them and destroy them, which I could rightfully do, with the office of the priesthood comes this gift of atonement. But it has to be daily. It has to be ongoing. It has to be regular because just as the lambs are offered at morning and at night, the people will sin from morning to night and from night until morning. And so continual offering must be made. Continual blood must be spilled for the people to remain clean and to remain atoned for in the presence of God so that they might have this fellowship with God. God says this is what has to be in place for me to be their God and them to be my people. They must remember that I am the Lord who brought them out of Egypt and for them to have fellowship with me, this is the way it must go. Sin offering, the work of the priests, bearing the people, atoning for the people, mediating for the people. We continue this work in chapter 30 with the altar of incense. Look at chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and it shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So a table... An altar on which to burn incense, 18 inches by 18 inches, length and width, square, 36 inches high. And it shall be placed, look at verse 6, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So in the tabernacle layout, the placement of this altar for incense will be before the main veil. The veil that separated the, most, the holy place from the most holy place. That, that separated the outer chamber of the tabernacle from the holy of holies where God's presence and God's glory there signified in the Ark of the Covenant was. Right in front of that, in front of that veil, is to be this altar for incense. And verse 8 of that same chapter tells us, When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Another thing that is to just keep on going. Just as the lamp's light is never to go out, the incense on the altar is never to stop burning. Just as the blood outside is never to stop flowing. Now we don't have this specified here about the altar of incense, but other passages in Scripture tell us what this is about. The psalmist tells us that our prayers arise like incense before the Lord. In Luke's gospel, when he is recounting the announcement of John the Baptist's birth to his father Zechariah, it is in the temple as Zechariah is going in to offer the incense offering. And he is there praying for the people, it says when Gabriel appears and announces the birth of John the Baptist. In the book of Revelation, there in the throne room of glory, we see incense, don't we? And what does the Lord tell John this incense is? That it is the prayers of the saints arising before the Lord. So although it's not specified here, it is specified later that this altar for incense represents the ongoing, ever-rising prayers of the people. Presented to God by none other than the priest. There at the presence of God in front of the Holy of Holies. So it's interesting that not just uh, the tabernacle is not just about us meeting or God meeting with us and God speaking to us. 
But there's also this exchange wherein the people speak to God. Their prayers lifted before him as the incense cloud rises in front of the veil. In verses 18 through 20, let's read about the consecration of the bronze basin. Chapter 30, verse 18. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for what? For washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. This bronze basin is here covered in bronze for Aaron and his sons to wash ritually, ceremonially, There's symbolism here in their going in and their coming out. Whenever they go in to minister before the Lord or when they come out to offer an offering to the Lord, they are to wash with water as a sign of cleansing and purification because, after all, they are unclean men just like the rest of Israel. Verses 22 through 25, we read about this sacred formula of oil It's a recipe for incense, and the Lord says that this recipe for the anointing oil, this this recipe for the incense is to be used only in the tabernacle and never for any other use. The people are not to try and duplicate it. The people are not to try and add to it or take away from it or use it for something else. It is for that purpose and that purpose alone. And look in chapter 30, beginning in verse 26, what they're to do with this oil. Chapter 30, verse 26. If I can find it. There it is. You shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense. And the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. All the furniture, all the tools, every aspect of the tabernacle, even Aaron and his sons are to be anointed with oil. Again, this biblical sign of God's spirit and God's blessing and God's joy setting these men and these tools and this space apart for God's use and nothing else. Down in verse 37, we read then about the incense. The incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from the people. This oil, this incense, this tabernacle, this furniture, these tools, these men, these robes, these garments are to be holy to the Lord. Set apart, peculiar, of exclusive use to God. And nowhere else. This is a unique setting. This is unique furniture. These are unique men. And these are unique garments. And so the priests are called by God. Atoned for their sins. Purified. Washed. Set apart. And anointed for God's work. Which primarily, whether it's sacrificing or the incense or whatever they're doing, their primary task is to bear or to carry the people before God. 
So that as they hear from God and they meet with God, they are doing so on behalf of the people. This, God says, this is the office. This is the office by which I will be with my people and by which my people will be with me. The office of the priesthood. And there will be no worship and no atonement and no forgiveness and no covenant apart from that office of the priest. The Lord goes on in chapter 31 verses 1 through 18 to give us more divine instruction. This whole thing has been divine instruction. Make the tabernacle like this. Make the furniture like this. These measurements, these colors, these materials. And now he comes down to even the people who will craft this thing for him. Set apart Aaron and his sons. Make them wear these clothes. And now set apart these men to do this task. Look at chapter 31, verse 2. See, I have called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And then down in verse 6, And behold, I have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to them able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So all these things that I have given to you to make, I have anointed these two men and their servants with my Holy Spirit, I've given them these gifts, filled them with my spirit to carry out, God says, the instructions that I gave you. Divine instructions according to my measurements. Remember how many times God reminded them of that? My pattern, what I showed you, what I revealed to you, and he reminds them of this here. Yes, these are going to be artistic men, craftsmen, able, creative, imaginative. And yet God says, this is your task. And you're going to do it exactly as I have shown you to do it and no other way. God's pattern. Exactly as God has shown by his spirit. And then in verses 12 through 18, we have a reminder. A central reminder about this day set apart for worship, set apart for rest, called the Sabbath. But it's not just a reminder of the Sabbath. Here at the end of these instructions is a reminder of the entirety of the law. Look at verse 18. God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Tablets that bear the law. The Ten Commandments, remember what we said they can be summed up with? Love God, love others. The tablets that bear the instructions that Moses will give the people. God says here, remember that this is the core and the center of what this is all about. My word, my law, my instructions. Remember, God says, how I have told you to worship me. I showed you how to worship me. You cannot just do your own thing. You will follow my pattern. And these are the conditions to meet with me. These are the conditions of my presence with you and your presence with me. Divine instruction. Not man-made stuff. Divine instruction. Divine directions in this gift that God gives them. And now we come in verse uh, chapter 32 to the final real narrative in the book of Exodus. Apart from nearing the end of the book, this is the final big narrative we have in the whole of the book of Exodus. 
Let's read uh, just what brings us here. In chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together, Aaron, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We're going quickly through this story. Moses has been on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It says that back in chapter 24, verse 18. It tells us that here in this passage, Moses has been gone a while. And as he's gone, the people are impatient. The people are concerned. What are we supposed to do? We have this revelation from God. They heard God's voice. They saw God's glory. What do we do from here? And so without clear instruction, they lose trust in Moses and they lose trust in God. And they forget the very word that they heard from God. And they commission Aaron in this instance to make them, quote, gods to serve. Now, they're just coming from what they have known in Egypt. This is how you do it, right? We need a God. You just make one and then you call it something and then you worship it and serve it and then hope that it gives you the answer you're looking for. And that's what they've commissioned Aaron to make for them. And so Aaron, in verses 2 through 6, he takes all their gold, their silver, their precious stones, he melts them down, and he makes them a golden calf, this idol, before they begin to offer burnt offerings there. And we think, man, how quickly the people turned against God. We haven't gone a few chapters, and they've already forgotten what God said. But that isn't quite the whole of the story, is it? Look at verse 4 of chapter 32. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we would immediately think they're turning to idols. They're turning to false gods. These, these false gods they're making up represented here and this cow. But that's not quite the end of the story either. Look at verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation. And he said, what did he say? Tomorrow shall be a feast to the cow, a feast to the cow god, the holy cow. He says, no, the feast shall be to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This shall be a feast day to Yahweh. So as the people become impatient and concerned and they want a God, it's not that they're necessarily turning to a different God, but they're attempting to worship Yahweh in this way that he has not revealed to them. In fact, he has expressly forbidden this. Remember Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. The third commandment is, or second commandment is to what? You shall not make any graven images, any idols. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. Have you ever thought why that's a separate commandment than commandment number one? Have no other gods before me and no graven images? Because they're different commandments. This is have no other gods. This is don't try to worship me or any other gods in this way with these graven images. And that's what they're trying to do here, isn't it? This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Let's have a feast day to the Lord by using this element that he has forbidden. Ignoring God's command for worship, devising their own command for worship, and in doing so, they fall hard into idolatry. By rejecting God's instruction, turning instead to man-made idolatry. 
foolishness, wickedness, evil. And how does God respond, beginning in verse 7? The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of what I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. What is God's rightful response to this? I'm going to wipe these people out. I've had enough of this. He's shown grace after grace after mercy after kindness to their grumbling and their complaining. And this is it. This is the last straw. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they're dealing with. They've forgotten my glory. God says they're still here at Sinai. They haven't left Sinai. But it seems that Sinai has left them. And there's no consequences in their minds for what they're doing. But God says, oh yes, there will be consequences. And now we see the need for a go-between. We see the need for a priest. And in chapter chapter 32, verse 11, we see these words. But Moses implored the Lord. Preachers often talk about the buts of the Bible. But God, but Jesus, but Christ. You ever stop and think, but Moses. Here the people are doomed for destruction. God threatens to wipe them out. But Moses implored. This means he appealed to God's grace. And he was asking for favor over judgment. And look at how Moses pleads there beginning in verse 11. O Lord... Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring. And they shall inherit it forever. Moses' appeal to God is what? Remember your promises. Turn away from your anger. Remember. And miraculously, God relents. God relents. God hears Moses' prayer. And he relents of the evil that he was going to bring against the people. But this does not mean there aren't consequences. Down in verse 19, when Moses came near the camp, it says, His anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I feel this as a pastor sometimes. When someone comes with a problem that they've dug themselves into, you say, oh my goodness, I'm going to pray for you. Oh God, send your angels and protect them and guide them and save them from this. And as soon as they leave the room, you start throwing stuff. What in the world is wrong with these people? I feel that as a pastor. Moses feels that here as a man. And he throws the tablets down. He breaks them. Not only that, but God kills some 3,000 Israelites that day for this sin. Even as Moses pleaded for him to relent, he relented from wiping them all out, but he still kills 3,000 who refuse to repent and to turn to him. And what is Moses' offer down in verse 30? Moses says, here's what I'm going to do. You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. I will go, 
And perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can make this okay. Verses 31 through 32, we call round two. Moses goes up again. He returns to the Lord. Verse 31, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book of life that you have written. Do you hear what Moses is praying here? If it will save them, kill me. If it will preserve them, take your wrath and your anger out against me. Moses here, on behalf of the people, presenting himself to God as their priest. Take me, God, and spare them. Again, God hears them. God hears Moses. He, he sends a plague to wipe out some of the people, but not all the people. And in chapter 33, in those first six verses, God says this. Go on into the promised land. I'm still going to fulfill my promises. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to make you great. But he says this. I am not going to go with you. Go ahead. I'll fulfill my promises. I'm not wiping the people out, but I'm done. And I'm not going any further with this people. And it's not until God threatens that, that in chapter 33, verse 6, the people remove these final remnants of their false worship. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They entered into a period of fasting and repentance and prayer before the Lord. In these next verses, 7 through 11, we're reminded of this tent of meeting where Moses used to meet. Down in verse 11, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So why do we have this inclusion here in the middle of this story about this place where Moses used to go to speak for God? Because if these people ever needed someone to go speak to God for them, it was now. After having committed this heinous sin of idolatry before the Lord, and God has threatened to wipe them out and has spared them, we have this reminder of this man who would go in and pray for the people. And in verses 12 through 16, Moses prays for his people one more time. Moses says to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And look how God responds. Verse 14, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses says, verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I, your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every every other people on the face of the earth? God says, I'll go with you. And Moses says, good. Because if you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. How else are we holy? How else are we distinct except by your presence, God? And then Moses asks a shocking question in verse 18. Request of the Lord, please show me your glory. 
As we come into chapter 34, God agrees to show Moses his glory, but he agrees with conditions. I will have to put you between two rocks. I'll have to cover you with my hand, and there you will see some portion of my glory. You only see the backside of my glory, he says to Moses. And as we come into chapter 34, we have something remarkable. We have the renewal of the covenant. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. Cut for yourselves two tablets of stones like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the tablets which you broke. You see what God is saying? We can reset this. They broke the commandments. You broke the tablets. I'm going to carve you new ones. And God in verse 10 says, Behold, I'm making a covenant before you and all the people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the peoples among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. God says, I'm renewing the covenant. I'm giving you the law again. And in the most shocking scene of all, probably verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth. And worshipped. There is the center of Sinai. God's glory and God's presence revealed to Moses. His name revealed to him. Verses 27 through 28 tell us Moses was there 40 days and 40 nights and was fasting. For these people, God's wrath... God's judgment were sure. God's wrath was deserved. God's wrath was coming. But Moses. Thank God for the people of Israel, there was an intercessor. Someone to go for them to God. Someone to act as a priest, bearing, carrying them before God. Pleading for them, praying for them, imploring and begging God to show grace and favor instead of judgment. Reminded of the quote by John Calvin, man is a perpetual factory of idols. Man is a perpetual factory of idols. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of that in the book of Romans chapter 1 verses 22 through 25. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed above all. Amen. This is about all of us. Not just Israel. We are perpetual idol factories. And we are ready and willing to serve and to worship anything but God. And because the people found themselves in that situation, they find themselves with a terrifying prospect. The prospect and the reality of God's judgment. 
And I wonder if you find yourself in that same terrible prospect this morning. The prospect and the promise of God's judgment. Believers, how easily we forget that this is what this is. That we have come to something better than Sinai. Into the glory of the Lord. To worship and to serve Him. How often do we find ourselves doing and making and creating everything about us rather than worshiping God? Believer, do you need to be reminded that you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, destined for destruction and judgment, and rightfully so? Believers, do you need to remember that God's law was revealed to his people? It revealed his perfection and his glory, and we have all failed to keep it. And so God had every right to depart from us, to forsake us, to abandon us, and to destroy us. But Jesus, born under the law, but born apart from the curse of sin. He who perfectly obeyed the law, who loved God, who loved others, always, everywhere, perfectly. Who was called and set apart by God before the dawn of time. Consecrated to do the Father's will. Who came to represent God to us as truly God. Consecrated to represent men before God because in his incarnation he became truly man. Clothed in the very righteousness of God. Washed in the Jordan River. Not because he needed cleansing from sin, but to identify with our need of cleansing from sin. Anointed by the person of the Holy Spirit who descended on him there in the Jordan. Tested for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without food. Crushed on a cross for my iniquities and yours. Who was forsaken and cut off so that we might be brought near. A faithful, great, pure, holy, sinless high priest who entered the gate, bypassed the altar for his own atonement, went boldly into the tent to speak with God, face to face for us, washed, anointed, perfect, entering into the holy of holies to offer himself. God gave those people the priesthood, holy, set apart, consecrated, and anointed, but it was imperfect. It was regular, it was perpetual, because sin was ongoing. And it never fully dealt with the problem of sin until Jesus. You see, the priests had to make their sacrifices daily. But Hebrews 7.27 says Jesus made his sacrifice once for all. The priests had to keep incense going regularly as the intercessors of the people. Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. The priests atoned for sin and covered sin until the next time. But Jesus, Hebrews 7.25, saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him. There's no perhaps about it with Jesus. It's done, it's accomplished, it's paid, and it's covered forever. And you can trust that if you are in Christ, when he went to that cross, the old gospel song says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You were there on his shoulders. You were there at his chest, close to his heart, as he bore you into the very presence of God and bears you there still to this day. 
Unbeliever, today, the call to you is to turn from your sin and to trust in this great high priest for your salvation. You must do it today. You must do it now. For believers, the call to you is also repentance and faith as those who know God now having assurance of his pardon through the Lord Jesus, that in your weakness, in your sin, in your temptation, and in your failures, believer, you have a great high priest who has made final atonement and satisfaction for your sin and bears you even now before the throne of grace, not just on his chest and his shoulders, but graven there into his very hands and his feet and his side, his own wounds pleading this new covenant of grace for you. Gone, believer, are your old robes of sin and filth. You have been given new clothes. Christ's very own righteousness. And you have been given new roles. You, Revelation 1.6 says, are a kingdom of priests to God. So that we now come to God through Christ by the Spirit... As he meets with us and he dwells with us and within us now and forever. He speaks to us by his spirit through the word. What gracious, wonderful, unbelievable covenant promises there are in Christ. And so we hear Job's concern, oh, that there was a mediator. And the good news of the gospel is there is a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 4.14, since we have such a great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your gift of love and mercy in the sending of your Son, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. And we ask today that as we by your Spirit come to your table to receive from your hands this bread and this juice that you would bring us to remembrance of our great high priest and the forgiveness that we have in him. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935-5604. We'll see you next time.